0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Profiles of Endurance. I'm Father Scott Vanderveer. One of my mentors in the priesthood is a now-retired priest of the Diocese of Albany ordained 53 years ago, Father David Noon. Father Dave is an inspiration to me in many ways. He's always on the cutting edge, always innovating and creating new ways of reaching out to people in ministry. And he's done that in small parish assignments, as the pastor of a large suburban parish for 27 years, in his role as chaplain at the University of Notre Dame, in his work as a hospital chaplain in New Zealand, and now as a priest representative for Unbound, the organization that allows American families to sponsor children and elders in developing countries around the world. Father Dave, though, almost didn't become a priest Because in a conversation with a seminary official just a few weeks before his ordination back in 1966, he was told that he wasn't cut out for the priesthood and it was recommended to him that he bow out of his ordination. He went into a deep spiritual darkness because of that and it took a long time for it to resolve. And the resolution was a really beautiful and subtle one. A story of God's intervention in his life that will always be one I'll treasure. So I hope that you'll settle in and listen to this conversation between a wise priest who's endured through many seasons of life and with his mentee who has so much to learn along the way. I'm delighted to be joined now by Father Dave Noon calling us from his retirement Location in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Dave, let's start at the very beginning. Talk to us a little bit about your childhood, about growing up with your sister and your parents. What was that like?
1: My cousin uh, Nancy and I talked about this recently. Uh, She lived in the neighboring community, and looking back, we said, you know, we were really lucky to have the parents we had and to have the communities that we had, and to have the parishes that we had, uh, Gloversville in the in the fifties was a very stable and uh, kind of right out of TV community. Mm. Um, it was just a, it was just a, a good wholesome place to grow up in. And we both, my cousin and I, we, we both had good families, and we. We both went to Catholic schools, different Catholic schools, but we, we, we liked that. I, I My parents did something really strange, and I never asked them to explain it, and I wish I had. We were actually members of the Irish parish in town, but for some reason, my mother decided that I would go to the Italian school.
2: <laughs>
1: it, 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 it was closer to home. Uh, and so I went, and uh, I, I remember that. It's funny how I remember this. I was kindergarten, and, and the mother superior, who was right from Italy, took one look at me. She says, oh, no, no, he's too tall. He has to go to first
2: grade. <laughs> so I got a promotion on my first day of school. I went from kindergarten to first grade. Oh. Uh,
1: and that probably, you know, that was it probably changed my whole life story right there. Uh, and, and in any event... Uh, I, I I was the only blonde-haired kid in that whole school. Ah. I was the only I was the only non-Italian in that school. Um, and when I went to get permission from my pastor, of the Irish parish, uh, to receive communion with the kids in my class, the, the Irish pastor said no. In fact, he said to my mother, who was with me. Uh, what are you doing with those people? Huh? That was kind of. Gloversville was a. At that point, Gloversville uh, Italians were. Italians were the immigrants. They were, you know, the, the people from Mexico today.
2: Yeah. Um, the,
1: the the Serbs or the Syrians or whatever. Yeah. And and, and everyone looked down on the Italians. Um, but I I didn't at that age I didn't. I didn't know an Italian from an Irishman, so they were just kids
2: hmm. uh, to me,
1: and I, I never felt treated any differently. So, so it was a good town and a very good experience.
0: In those grammar school days, did you already start thinking about the priesthood?
1: I don't know when. Uh, two things happened. Uh, well, first of all, uh, the pastor of the Italian parish uh, was really outstanding. Uh, unlike the pastor of the Irish parish uh, <laughs> Father Joe D'Agostino Father D we used to call him he was just just a wonderful guy uh, and I loved him and he was kind of a role model for me
2: mm. and at,
1: at some point I began to see myself doing what he did mm. but I what I remember is I think I was in third or fourth grade and we were in church or something and there was a card in the pew, and it was that prayer of Cardinal Newman. You know, you're everyone is a link in the
0: chain. Yes,
1: that thing. And that that it's hard to believe. I was thinking of this in third grade, maybe fourth grade, or fifth grade. I don't know. So, what what's what's God's plan for my life? So, and it, and it just seemed that uh, my God's plan for me was to do what Father D did. Oh. And, that's, uh, so, um, and, and back in those days, you know, I was a pretty high calling, um, and I probably, it probably wasn't until at some point in the seminar I really, I felt personally called, as opposed to a call through idol worship, you know, role modeling.
0: Mm. Uh, so. That's uh, fascinating. But, so if I
1: hadn't gone to the if I had gone to the Irish the the Italian parish, one of the Irish parish, where a pastor who really wouldn't have been a very good role model, who knows maybe I would never enter the seminary.
0: Ah, it's it's amazing. Fate. Look, the fate. Looking back at those breadcrumbs, if somebody was talking to David Noon in high school and asked him what he wanted to do when he grew up, what would he have said then?
1: Well, what he did say was law school, because that was my other my other thought. Um, I, I really didn't want to say I was interested in the seminary. I didn't want to come across as goody-goody, or, you know, I wanted to be treated normally. So I talked about going to law school. I mm. talked about going to Boston College. It was something that it attracted me. I'd been on the debating team, and I saw law as a good ministry, and... Um, so it wasn't until towards the end of my senior year that I actually told my classmates that I was going to go to the seminary.
0: So after graduation, what happened next?
2: Well, after graduation, um, I got a job at the shrine at Orisville, working in the, uh,
1: Jesuit's tertianship office, and then so I, after, I did a couple of summers of that, and, um, and toyed with the idea of joining the Jesuits, but 14 years seemed too long.
2: <laughs> um, so I, I uh, applied for Montecristi
1: Seminary and spent my first two years there. Seminary that's now the New York State Police Academy, I think still probably. That's
0: correct.
2: And uh,
1: after that, I went to St. Bernard's Seminary in Rochester, which was called the Rock and i remember my first day at st Bernard's. i walked in the room my room uh, and uh, my roommate looked totally shocked like what are you doing here and um that was because when he looked he got there before me and when he looked at the roster he didn't read noon he read no one
2: So he thought he was going to have a room to himself.
1: Oh. And wound up rooming with me. Oh, so I was there for two years. Right? It was a uh, Saint Bernard's at the time had a reputation being kind of like Alcatraz.
0: That's where very, the word "the rock" came from. The yeah, rock,
1: yeah, exactly. It's a, a very hard, very demanding, very rural regimen and Very. Academic, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: Do you know why you were chosen for that environment over a different environment?
1: Well I probably had a fairly good academic record. Yeah. So I think that was probably that probably had something to do with. It, it was myself and another Albanians went to the rod.
0: Yeah, isn't that something? So two years yeah. there at the Rock. What 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 do you graduate with when you're done with with those last two years at the Rock? What did you have? Your
1: bachelor's in philosophy.
0: A bachelor's degree in philosophy. Got it. So, so then it's time. That's, you know, just that the a lot of people don't realize that that's what priests do. They have to have a base degree, a bachelor's degree in philosophy, and then you don't really learn the bulk of the theology until you go off to this, the seminary, the, the major seminary, which is what we would, I guess, it's what we would call graduate school for priests that that everybody goes to. So talk to us about that because you were chosen for a very unusual path for seminary. When and where were you when you found out where you were being assigned for your major seminary?
1: Well, I remember one day getting a notice, a call, or someone told me that the rector wanted to see me. <laughs> Monsignor uh, Craw Monsignor, and uh, he was I, I don't know, he was like Thor, the god of thunder <laughs>
2: uh,
1: he had a very deep voice and he was kind of like
2: Darth Vader as I know that I, I think of it <laughs> to use a more contemporary reference
1: and uh, he was not someone you really wanted to go to his office to spend time with uh, oh I, I had to assume that I had done something wrong. I, I knew no one at home was ill, so I, I didn't think that for some reason. I assumed that I was in trouble. Oh. So I went to his office, and uh, a very brief conversation, he told me, been informed by the diocese, that they would like to send me to the North American College in Rome for theology, and um, they needed a decision within a couple of days.
0: This was this was um, not Rome, New York. This was Rome, Italy. This
1: is Rome, Italy, right? Rome, Italy.
0: Wow. Um, I,
1: I think I think at that point when he told me that, I think I would rather have been there because I was in trouble. <laughs> <laughs>
2: because
1: this was a bigger trouble as far as I was concerned. I had no interest. In wow going to the North American College in Rome.
0: What did you know about um, it at that point? What were you picturing? I, I, I,
1: I, knew, I knew very little. I, I just knew that very bright, uh, I, I suppose, very bright people went there and, from all over the country. And I, I was a lover's hometown with a lover's little kid. I, I, you know, once my family took a trip to Wyoming to see my aunt, but that was, you know, other than that, I'd never been out of the States, out of New York State, mm. let, alone, let alone out of the country.
2: Mm. Um, so, and then the idea was that if you went,
1: you didn't come back. If you came back, it was to leave seminary. So if your parents died or there was some family crisis, you weren't allowed to come home.
0: How many years? I, was, I, how I many years?
1: So four years.
0: Four years, so years of not home. coming home at all.
1: Right, right. So I knew that, and I don't know. I wasn't. I, I, re, I really wasn't very excited about it um, to begin with. I, 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 I called my parents. Um, they weren't. They weren't excited about it, but they weren't as unexcited as as I was.
2: <laughs>
1: I, 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 they saw it as an opportunity for me you know, to go to Europe. So they saw it from that point of view. Uh, they weren't unwilling. They didn't discourage me um, from going. They didn't encourage me to go. Uh, they really kind of left the decision up to me. I wanted someone to tell me what to do. And so I, I went to see Father Charlie Curran. you remember that name?
0: That's a famous name in the Catholic world.
1: Yes, yeah, Father Charles Curran. He was uh, he was Charlie then, and he, later on he got to be Charles. Um, but uh, he was on the theology staff, and he had just come to the seminary and from Rome, and he was very popular. He was young, and he was bright, and guys liked him. I, I didn't know him well because I was in philosophy on the philosophy side, and everything I heard about it was very good, so I, I went. I signed up to had an appointment with him, and I asked him all the questions I needed. What's it like, and et cetera, et cetera. And then I, I said, "Well, if you were me, what would you do?" And that's where I was going to get my answer. Uh, but he said, "No, that's something for you and God to decide."
2: Oh. I can't.
1: I can't decide that for you. I honestly
0: don't know what made me decide
1: to accept it. Accept at some point, even though I wasn't excited about it, I felt. I felt it was a call. Mm.
2: It was something I was supposed to do, um, and so there it was. Yeah, so uh, September twenty first, uh, I left on the boat Leonardo da Vinci.
0: The port in New York City with 81 classmates. All One were number, on the uh, same uh, boat. All
1: on the same boat, 81, uh, eight days, uh, except except the diocese, in those days, cruise ships had three levels, first, second, and tourist, and the diocese put me in tourist, along with uh, Paul Lickley from Louisville, and the other seventy-nine people were up in second class. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, uh, however, I, I was able to bribe a uh, steward. I think they were stewards back then uh, to let me go up and have meals with my other classmates. Otherwise, I had to stay in tourist.
2: Oh, it,
1: it was ridiculous. I mean, the whole point of going over. With the eighty-one guys, was so that you would get to know, you know, establish some friendships early on, and get to know one another, and, and and yet that kind of got thwarted by my being down in tourist class
0: most, <laughs> most of the time. So you so, eight days adrift at sea, and what is what's going on in your in your heart and your mind during that time?
1: Well, there basically anxiety and anxious about what's ahead. You know, am I going to be able to? Pull this off? Do I have what it takes to study theology in, in Rome? And I, I I never thought of myself as that academically gifted. Um. So, but I, I guess I I I enjoyed the trip over, and we were greeted by uh, students at the um, port. One of them Howard Hubbard, uh, eventually the Bishop of Albany, and. Uh, We had a little road trip up through uh, Naples and um, uh, Sorrento and the Amalfi Drive. It was all very impressive, very beautiful. What I remember most is as we pulled into Rome, the bus stopped in St. Peter's Square. And just seeing St. Peter's Square
0: in person for the first time, of course, you know, back then we barely had television. Yes. television was uh, you know kind of a, a still a very new item what was the year uh, Dave uh, this was sixty sixty three. 63 wow 63
1: so I it was just I, it was hard to believe here I'm here I am standing or in a bus looking at from the bus window St. Peter's it was pretty powerful experience
0: wow and and so you've you've arrived, and we've just to just to review a couple of the names that we talked about for for any listeners who might not know. Charles Curran went on years later to become famous for his writing on uh, the birth control encyclical and some of what he said was very, uh, controversial, forward thinking for his time and, and controversial. And, uh, so he's become a famous name in the Catholic world since then. And of course, you mentioned Howard Hubbard. I think it's very charming to consider that The man who wound up becoming the Bishop of Albany for almost 40 years at that time was a seminarian himself. He was greeting you because that's where he was studying, and he was near the end of his studies. Is that right? He was getting near the end and was getting ready to come home?
1: Yeah, he he was in his last year. Let me go back to Charlie Kern for a moment. Um, So what Charlie Kern said to me is, you need to make your own decisions about what you're going to do with your life. And make those decisions with God, and and that was really the approach he took with the birth control thing. That it was a matter of conscience.
2: Interesting. Uh, so uh, before there even was a birth control issue, yeah. uh, that, that was his thinking. His
1: thinking was, you don't. The church doesn't tell people what to do.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, ultimately, you have to do.
2: What in your
1: conscience you believe to be the right thing to do? Yeah. So I learned that lesson from Charlie Curry early. Most of my life, I've been told what I should do. Yes.
2: Or yes. not, or I got signals, or you know, I, I kind of uh,
1: people didn't necessarily tell me what to do, but I, I, I knew what I was supposed to do. This time, it was more. You know, this was more an inner. This is my first real inner decision that I made for myself that
0: no one made for me. Yes, yes. Well, it's so that's a that's a great aside. Thank you for taking the time to say that because that's right. That's a great example of how uh, a lot of us are wired spiritually to think and and perceive the world as we do for throughout our lives. So, what a great glimpse into Father Charlie Curran in a way that for those who are listening and and know his work, I think people will find that to be fascinating and, and very consoling. I mean, he was consistent with his with his way of looking at God and at decision making throughout. That's fascinating. So you just said most of your of your time you were told what to do and that was certainly true of formation in Rome. Very structured and structured in a way that people might find surprising. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about your classes? You're an American seminarian and your plan is at the end of this time you're going to come back to the Diocese of Albany, New York and you're gonna serve the people of this diocese who are you know about a mix of, of European um, immigrants mainly the Catholic population, most of us English speaking, most of us very Americanized. Um, what was your what were your studies like in those days? Well first let me say the North American College was a breath of
1: fresh air in terms of by comparison to the rock <laughs> First of all it was, a, it was a newer facility I had my own room and was shared with a roommate. And, and, and modern conveniences. Uh, it, it, it was a, it, it, we had we had wine at meals. I mean, it was a much more relaxed environment. Uh, you know, at at uh, Saint Bernard's, for example, if you went to take a shower, you had to wear your cassock to the shower. <laughs> you know, I mean, in Rome you didn't have to do that. Wow! Uh, I mean, it was just so there was a, there was a lot of freedom. Uh, and you got to go out uh, into the city one day a week and one day a month you could go out in the city on your own as for classes, that was a different story, classes were at a university that I think opened sometime in the 1500's Wow Jesuit University. I think it goes back that far I forget um, lots of great people have gone there uh, classes were held in large what, what they called aulas or large halls that would seat maybe 200, 300 of us, uh, maybe 200. Uh, anyway, and uh, up in the front uh, on a podium would be the professor and all classes were in Latin. I, and, uh, you, you, you asked me about why I was sent there you know, at, at Bernards, some of the subjects at Bernards were taught in Latin.
2: Mm.
1: So I'd had that experience. So that was not a new experience for me. Um, the philosophy classes were taught in Latin. I think maybe that might be the only one that was taught by Latin. But anyway, I was kind of used to that. Wow. Um, but the problem with uh, the professors in Rome was that they... Um, they were from all the France and Spain and Italy and Germany and every single one of them had an accent. (laughs) And so bad enough, it was in Latin, but it was in Latin with thick accents. And so for me, it was totally unintelligible. I sat there in these, these rooms and wrote letters home and read Time magazine or you were, the Daily American or whatever.
0: You barely understood what what they were saying.
1: Well, you'd give it a try, and then after a while, you had the energy. But the, the English College, the English College had a tradition of supplying notes, uh, translated notes of lectures, um, summary translations, which were extremely helpful. Yeah. And basically, that's how we survived. Wow. You know, it, it wasn't a question of a lot of deep thinking. It was a question of passing exams. Yeah. It's it's unlike seminary today. I think seminary today is really better uh, in terms of forcing seminarian students to think and react and explain and understand. We just had a feedback what we were taught, basically.
0: What were the upsides of being, studying in Rome?
1: Uh, The upsides of studying in Rome, well, I often thought the education, there wasn't an upside to the education. I probably would have gotten a better education in the States. Um, But I, I got a... I got a better degree in a sense because it was from the Gregorian University so paper
2: looked good but I
1: I probably knew less than my classmates who studied the States um but Rome was Rome was just an exciting city again you know again this is 1963 I I've never been out of New York except once and I'm in Rome, Italy and I'm seeing the Colosseum and the Pantheon and uh uh, the Borghese Gardens and the Spanish Stairs and going to church after church and the catacombs and going to papal ceremonies and uh, seeing popes and and then the Vatican Council was on and that was just a overwhelming experience to be there during the council yes. so many things were happening there's so much conversation about newness and what was developing in various areas, and these pariti, council pariti, these experts, council experts, so to speak, <coughs> would come and give lectures at, at our college at night, and they were, just, they were fascinating. I guess maybe I learned a great deal from them. Uh, so I, I enjoyed the overall experience of being in Roma, and I liked... I liked the people I was with. I liked the students I was I was with. They were a great bunch of guys. How and did you? So that was good.
0: How did you stay in touch with home? How did you manage to uh, to be in contact with your parents, your sister, your friends back home?
1: Aerograms.
0: Wow. Little blue, little blue sheets of paper that you folded up
2: and you put a stamp on, and you wrote a letter
1: once a week, and they wrote back to you and. I tried to call once uh, at Christmas time. When well, Christmas time, I tried to call. But the cable, the underwater cable, i uh, you had a sign-up. I signed up for like 3 o'clock, and when I got there, um, oh, I know, maybe it was noon, whatever time I signed up, when I got there, they were already four hours behind.
2: Oh. So I, I i didn't make that call. So I, I would I would record tapes and send tapes home. Wow. I set tapes
1: and and of course always took pictures, lots of pictures. Wow. So uh, my sister and my cousins hated Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving because at dinner they to listened to my tapes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the punishment. My mother, oh. my mother
1: insisted on playing, and then of course summer times we were free to we we went out to a summer residence for the seminaries, which had a pool and tennis courts. And it was quite nice out in uh, the Castle of Gandalfo. Um, and it was cooler out there in the summer. It was very lovely. We were free to go through the countryside. And uh, uh, it was great. It was kind of like a camp, really. We'd live in, there'd be, be six of us in a, in a room, six or seven of us in a room. It was like Boy Scout camp, really, in a way. Um, Paul, Paul VI came out to visit one day, and we met him, he gave us each a book, and they signed. Wow. Uh, and, then, and then we got to travel Europe for a month. Um, and those were exciting summer trips. I think, you know, I was thinking today, um, only because I was listening to something on C-SPAN, I, I think other than the council... Uh, uh, yes the the guy on the C-SPAN uh, book note thing mentioned where were you the day Kennedy was shot mm. and I was in Rome and we had just finished supper and after supper we went into chapel to say the Angelus and at the end of the Angelus the vice rector said I have some very sad news we have received word that the president was shot in Dallas and has died. Mm. This was like 6 o'clock at night or 7 o'clock at night. It must have been 7 o'clock at night. It was just unbelievable. I, 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 I just can't forget that day. And I remember the next day, we many of us, we went up to the American Embassy to sign the condolence book up at the American Embassy. Um, it, it was powerful. Wow. Uh, sec, second to the council, that was my most powerful, positive experience in the world. Well, not positive, but second most memorable Certainly. In, in a way. You, you just felt you felt connected with every single American in that college in a very special way that day. Because we were all feeling the same thing. Yes. Whether you liked whether you liked Kennedy or didn't, uh, you just you just were bonded with him. And for the next few days spent watching television like all the Americans.
0: Yes, it fascinating. We've heard lots of stories of, of people remembering where they were that day, but none of them sound like yours being overseas and not just overseas, but you were not going to be able to see the soil of your country where all of this happened for another four years. This was in the very beginning. Right. True. That's something. True. That's something. Dave, your, your family was never able to come visit until your ordination at the end because you were actually ordained in Rome. And so I, I'd like to go to closer to the ordination time because uh, as your family was getting ready to make their plans to come and all of the ordination plans were were getting set uh, for for the day, uh, you wound up having a conversation with somebody that really shook you uh, and for good reason. Uh, this is a very tender story. It's a very uh, difficult, uh, thing to talk about, but it's a, it's it's really a big part of your profile of endurance. Can you talk to us a little bit about that conversation and and what was said? It was uh, uh, oddly enough, it was Thanksgiving evening,
2: mm. and this uh, my spiritual director called me to his his room.
1: And now this was, Thanksgiving is what, around the 20th, 24th, somewhere Mm -hmm. in there. Ordination was December 17th. So it was was less than a month before
2: ordination. Mm. My family all had their plane tickets. We had
1: trips arranged. Uh, Once ordination was over, go to Florence, go to Switzerland, go to London, go to Paris, etc., uh, my parents and no one, no one in the group coming over had been uh, been outside the state, so this was going to be a major event in their lives. Mm. So the he was pretty direct. The spiritual guard was pretty direct. He said, "David, I, uh, I, I'm afraid I need to tell you that I really do not think that you should be ordained." Well, I, I. I don't know if I, I did hear him. I'd like to think that I didn't hear him at first, but I, I heard him. And it, uh, it, until this moment, until this very moment, no one, uh, I mean, I've got calls about my mother my mother dying or my father dying or other relatives dying, and they've all been shocking. But I, and this is the most shocking thing anyone had ever said to me at that point in my life and ever since the most shocking thing that anyone said to me i i guess because well i mean his reasoning was if i remember his reasoning and he may have given me a whole bunch of reasons the only one i remember was i've been honest with him uh, about uh i i was not exactly a rule keeper
2: mm. Mm-hmm. I, I, w- I was a bit of a nonconformist, conformist mm-hmm. and he knew that, and his argument was that I would never be happy in the
1: priesthood because I'd never be able to live by the rules, and mm-hmm. I would be uncomfortable, and I would make everybody I lived with uncomfortable, and I would make the people I ministered to uncomfortable and so for that reason he was suggesting i i I need not be ordained now i guess looking back on it i think why did he wait until i mean, this guy this guy knew me i mean why did he wait until three weeks before ordination i mean he could have told me a year prior or six months prior or you know, uh, why wait till almost the day of the wedding, so to speak? Uh, that created the greatest turmoil that i ever experienced in my life. And I guess, I mean, it would be like if you were in medical school and you've been through college, you've been through medical school, and you've been through residency. And at the end of residency, um, I don't know, someone decided that, you weren't fit to practice medicine after all of these years. And no one ever told you that they'd watched you operate. They'd watched you with patients and they'd never once ever, ever said a thing to you that, and all of a sudden they they say you can't be a doctor. You're not fit to be a doctor. But the complication here was the thinking in that in those days was that the spiritual director, it was from God's mouth to his ear. Ooh. And and from his ear to his voice to me. So what that said to me was, God is saying to you, you should not be ordained. Oh. And so uh, that put me in a a double bind. Um, For me to be ordained uh, was going to go against God. Wow. And so uh, that created uh, a great deal of turmoil, uh,
2: inner turmoil.
0: Were you? Could you bring that to anybody? What One of the things that strikes me is those of us in the seminary often go to our spiritual director because the spiritual director is supposed to be a completely confidential environment. That, that relationship is one, what we call in, in formation, internal forum, which means... Um, it is the one person who you can safely share anything with and they will not tell the, uh, the, the other faculty that votes on your, on your progress. Um, they, they know what's going on and they participate. They're kind of a, they're a link. They're a conduit. They're connective tissue between those two parts, but they are, this internal forum means they treat, uh, what you share with them, not exactly like confession, but very much in that kind of way. So the person who you normally would confide in is the one who said this to you. Who could you go to to share this with? Nobody.
1: I, I didn't go to anyone. Oh,
0: I can't imagine what that felt like, the, uh, the isolation in that. What happened? What happened to your lifestyle? What happened to your sleeping and your and your eating? What what kind of physical effects and emotional effects did you have to endure?
1: Well, I had to live a double life. I had to pretend everything was all right when everything wasn't all right. Wow! And you know, I at, at one point I remember walking up to the roof. We had a we had a college had a roof area, covered roof area, and I I wondered whether I should. The, you know, the solution would have been to just jump off the roof and then it went been all over. I wouldn't have to deal with any of this. Yeah, but I didn't do. I didn't. I didn't do that. Um, I, you know, I
2: started drinking mm. to, o- only to only to get to sleep at night, so I could get to sleep at night. And that was the only reason for drinking. Yes.
1: Um, and everything else, it was it was a fog. It was I, I had to pretend. It was I, I don't know how I did it. Looking back on it, I really don't know how I did it. So when my parents came, I had to pretend to be excited and happy and overjoyed, and yet, but to be honest with you, and I think I I told other people this. I, Ordination Day was the worst day of my life.
0: That let's pause with that for a second. Let's because that is a powerful thing to say. You would. I, I did not know what my ordination day would feel like. And I, I did not have any idea to know if it was going to feel just exhausting or overwhelming. Or, And I actually think I can say, for me, it might have been, if not one of the, it might have been the happiest days of my life. And, and for you, it was the worst day. Say more about it being the worst day. What was that day like?
1: Well, actually, what had happened was a classmate of mine had come to my room that night and uh, shared a lot of self-doubt about getting ordained. And he's turned out to be one of the best priests in our class. Mm. Uh, and and so we had this conversation. I actually didn't tell him. It was more him wanting to, to confide in me. So we wound up having some drinks and I, I don't think I, I got to bed till 3 o'clock, but we were up at 6 and I, it, was, it was just a horrible day, it was just uh, I, I didn't feel well and, and lay on the floor of the altar it just, but I but I pulled it off, you know and gave we had a little dinner at the ordination ceremony and I gave a little talk and then we went traveling and but it was it was a very unhappy time,
0: Dave. I think people listening might be curious. did you give did you give it serious thought to not be ordained after what was said to you?
1: No, not really and And for two reasons, uh, one which is not the right reason, you know. I had the wedding dress, and then the cake was prepared,
2: and, yes. and the flowers were ordered, and, yes. and I and so I I couldn't, and
1: besides, I, I I even though I thought the rector was speaking God to me, what, the reason he was giving to me didn't ring true to me. Yes. So if it had, if if what he had told me. That I wouldn't be happy as a priest because I'd be too much of a nonconformist. If if that had rung true, then I probably would have given it some serious thought. But what he—it just didn't ring true to me. In My four years in Rome, no other faculty member ever said anything, and, and I, I was never a disciplinary problem. And you know, I didn't always keep the rule, but. Um, I just didn't get
0: caught, I guess. So. And the, and the rector had every right to pull you from the ordination class if he felt you were not equipped. Oh so, yeah, true. yeah. So this is this was not a problem the seminary had. This was a private feeling of the spiritual director. What did you have to have more interaction with him uh, for a, after this?
1: No, I chose sure not to. When when ordination was over and I got back, we had two spiritual directors, so I went to the, the other director who was very helpful. Uh, I think talking to him was very helpful. And ultimately, uh, the rest of the year was a disaster, cause, not just because
2: of this, but because we, we had finals in uh, late
1: June, early July, uh, oral exams, and, and I had to prepare for them, and I was in you no know, frame of mind to study, and uh, it was just... And the way it worked was uh, that particular year the exams they they had a crazy system there. Uh, Sometimes they go A to Z, A would be up first and Z would be up last, and then they go Z to A. My year they went A to M, and then Z to N. Oh, and so I was like the one of the I was like one of the last people taking the oral exam. So people were leaving and. and I was one of the few remaining still studying,
2: supposedly, to take this exam, and uh, it was—it was just a
1: nightmare. It was just a nightmare.
0: I—I I can't imagine. And just to clarify for those listening. It, it, If I have this straight, correct me if I'm wrong, in the Roman system of that time, it sometimes goes through changes as decades go, but at that time, you were ordained in December, but you were not done being a student. You were a priest, but you were not yet in a parish in Albany. You had to complete your studies until the summertime, and then you would come home. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. And say mass, and and I, I began having
0: panic attacks... Oh. uh I mean very very difficult you know just to
1: get true things uh without because i my all my my self confidence was gone
0: you i mean i know self confidence. i think we should pause here for a second and just acknowledge that uh this is a very extreme story of someone in a in a power position ref- telling someone who is looking up to them and depending on them for guidance, something that is devastating and and also uh, is hard to, the, the validity of it is hard to trace. This may indeed have been a, a really sincere reflection on the part of the spiritual director, but whether that was worth sharing or not is is something that I guess, you know, did he really believe in his whole heart that that needed to be shared because it's, it's hard to make sense of it. But just the devastation, I think it's powerful for us to have a moment to hear the devastation that someone's words can have on another person, especially when that person is in a position of power and that power differential made it that you really felt that you were hearing the voice of God reject you and reject what you thought you were called to do. The, the devastation of that is hard to put into words i I just want to honor that with i i think everyone listening right now is feeling like they've been punched in the stomach because it's uh it's hard to hear well i think that
1: um i think that i felt somewhere in within me that i was supposed to be a priest i i felt the call i i think um but then, it, it, what he had to say seemed to contradict what I was internally experiencing. So that was part of it. And I guess the thing was that if he'd really felt the way he felt, waiting until a month before ordination—less than a month—his timing was terribly off. It's terribly off. No, I mean, I mean, he could have. Again, as I said before, he could have told me this a year earlier. I mean, he he knew me, and I nothing changed. <laughs> nothing changed in my behavior. However, now moving ahead a little bit, I think something was going on in his life, and and there may have been other students that he told this to too. I don't know. I may not have been the only one. Yes. Uh, how, however, he. Uh, not long after that, a few years after that, he left the priesthood and got married.
0: My oh my! And um, so he may, he
2: may, he may have been having maybe there's some projecting going on. I, I
1: can't say that's the case. I'm sure he, I'm sure he felt he was sincere, and I have no hard feelings. I've never had any hard feeling towards him. Because I always felt he was doing what he felt he had to do. So,
0: Dave, that's I, that's I, I had remarkable. No hard Because as your your friend, I have hard feelings toward him. You don't have any hard feelings.
1: No, no. He was doing what he thought was right. I I, I have a problem, again, with his timing, but I I don't have a problem. No, he
2: was doing what he thought was
0: right. You know something that I think strikes me as you say this, though? I'd never before heard the uh, Father Curran story that you told from St. Bernard's, where you said, please give me direction for what to do, and he said, oh, no... No, this must be internal. It must come from your dialogue with God. Such a contrast with the approach of this spiritual director who said, I know what you should do, and it's not be ordained.
1: Yeah, and again, I, I don't want to repeat myself, but if 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 he had said something to me that really rang true to me, I think I would have listened. But the reasons he was giving just didn't make sense to me. So so w- what I wound up was
0: confused. Yes,
1: I felt that I was supposed to go ahead, but I was getting a signal that I wasn't. So
0: that's the way it was. You were, when you came back to Albany, you were given a uh, an assignment of honor. Uh, the assignment that you were given was an assignment that uh, oftentimes people who are um, held in high esteem in the diocese might be given. Your very first assignment was to be the uh, associate pastor, the second in command, the parochial vicar at the cathedral. But you didn't. You did not feel up to that. Talk to us about that. That experience.
2: Well, I had
1: shared with the second spiritual director my disarray, my, my messed upness, so to speak. And he had, uh, before leaving the college, he had spoken to the rector, and the rector had uh, written to the bishop saying that I had had some turmoil. That was vague, kind of a vague thing. So my first assignment should be given sensitive to that, Um, however, um, I, I really didn't want to go to the cathedral and I explained to Bishop McGinn at the time that, and I I guess he could probably tell that I was really not not fit to go to the cathedral. So he assigned me to Hudson Falls, New York, which I didn't even know existed to tell you the truth. Hmm. The Northway had just gone in. It didn't even go all the way to Montreal. I had no idea. I've, I'd heard of Glens Falls when he said Hudson Falls. I thought he meant Hudson, and I had to look it up on a map to find out where it was. Anyway, hmm. it, it, it turned out to
2: be uh, it turned out to be just a wonderful assignment. It, um, the pastor there who had a reputation
1: of being a, a terror.
2: Just someone you would not want to live with mm. had developed
1: cancer and had completely mellowed him. Wow! And, and um, uh, he he was really he 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 would say mass, but I'd have to preach because the, because of the weakness of the cancer and whatnot. And he was always very affirming, very supportive. I, I could feel that.
2: I could feel the healing from the affirmation. Wow. Uh,
1: And I remember, uh, I remember one night at supper when the other associate wasn't there. He said to me, he had this couple coming in uh, for marriage, pre-marriage counseling. And he said, what were they teaching you in Rome about birth control? (laughs) <laughs> and basically the the approach of the of the German professor was pretty much like father Kern. it was a matter of conscience
2: mm.
0: so I
1: told him that and so he said to me why don't you see this couple instead of me seeing them
0: wow so
1: what he was saying is I'd like you to tell them
0: but i i can't do that you know what I mean yes yeah I, I
1: was i i, I I'm not at a point yet where I feel free enough to say that to a couple. And the fellow was in his 80s. He was a wonderful man. He'd been there, pastor for uh, uh, 40 years, Doc Kiffin. Um, he got to wear a minor and a Crozier and
2: everything else. <laughs> wow. one of
1: these, the Monsignors. Was, you know. So anyway, it was a wonderful community. I, I developed some good friends and, uh, Uh, It was just a a, just a wonderful community to be a part of. The people were people wonderful, and and very slowly, I kind of found stability. I found grounding,
0: uh, and and I didn't want to leave there. You know, you know, Bishop Matthew Clark, who uh, was grew up in Albany, became the bishop of Rochester for thirty three years. I was speaking with him. Uh, about his looking back at his life and his ministry. And he said something so beautiful. He said, you know that scripture where it says, God is the potter and we are the clay. He said, I really love that image that God is molding my life. He said, but I really believe that when you're a priest or a bishop, he said, if you look back over what God used to mold you as clay, he said, in my life, it has always been that the hands of God were the people I was serving. They were the hands of God molding me. And it just that just occurred to me as you were talking about the people of, of Hudson Falls working with those good people and having a pastor who affirmed you. Those were, those were the hands of God molding you and healing you after a really rough ride.
1: Oh, yeah, and I, I've often said that I've been more blessed than I've, been, I've received more blessings than I've given blessings. And then the second pastor, Jim McManus, was an absolute prince. He was uh, So I really had a lot of my classmates left uh, out of the class of 66, I think, were ordained. Uh, uh, over a third of them left, and many of them during those first five years. And, and often because of you know they they couldn't the constant con- conflict between the Vatican II pastor and the and the Vatican II assistant and and I I had I had men who were you know just very affirming and supportive.
0: What what a blessing! What a blessing! Yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: Hudson Falls is also a place where you experienced a really remarkable moment. That shifted things for you in a major way, and uh, it it really seems to relate directly back to the healing of of that brutal conversation with your spiritual director in Rome. Can you can you talk to us about that experience?
1: Well, I, I you know, um, even though Hustle was a good experience, it was still that nagging doubt: should should I have been ordained? Should I have been ordained? Should I have been ordained? And I acted against the will of God, I acted against the will of God. And I I just couldn't resolve that. Was this, was this, was I a fraud? I guess that's the question, was I a fraud? Mm. And so, one day I was sitting in church, uh, mulling this over, and I noticed uh, my attention was drawn to the Bible, a Bible that was on a stand near the altar rail. And I, I I found it distracting, I kept trying to put it out, out of my mind, but the more I did the more... Finally I got up and I walked up to it, and it was open, and I looked down at it, and the first, what I saw on one side of the page was Psalm 89, and I just started to read it. And verse 20 of Psalm 89 says, I have called David my servant and I have anointed him with oil. Mm. Um, My first name is David and I at that moment at that moment I consider my ordination.
0: Oh, not not in Rome, that moment.
1: That was the validating moment. I felt like God was saying get over it
2: this has been going on long enough. You've been like Hamlet, oh. you know, agonizing, the, walking around the castle agonizing, and I, I can't take it anymore, so here, here's a psalm, read it, <laughs> <laughs> girl up, get up for yourselves, you know, <laughs> so, anyway,
1: yeah, oh. and so that, that was very helpful, that was very helpful. This is but David, there's...
0: my servant amazing.
1: There there was still trauma inside that needed attention and um, um, I I guess that began when I moved to my next assignment. That's when I began to realize that I needed to get some counseling and and really kind of get myself get, get a true sense of myself so that I'm I'm, you know, I'm working from the center of me. Yes. Uh, and and that, that's what happened ultimately. I The counseling did help. And then uh, in 1981, I, I got, and this is kind of interesting, again, I think this is kind of, you know, God's work too. I, my father died in 1975. A few months after that, I was asked to go to Gloversville where my mother lived, and then my mother died in 1980, and shortly after she died, I was asked to go to Notre Dame for a sabbatical. So I think I was supposed to be in Gloversville partially for the sake of my mother. Wow. Uh, And to get kind of bonded with the family, et cetera. Uh, But Notre Dame, I think, when I look back on the most transformative experience in my life, it, it would be Notre Dame. Um,
0: the famous university, the famous university in Indiana. Yeah.
1: So that that was a, that was a, I, had, I went there for a sabbatical and wound up taking a job there uh, the Office of Student Affairs, uh, a, a job that I never would have envisioned myself <laughs> doing. And uh, I, I guess because it was a it was a job that didn't require a priest, really. I discovered that um, I had something, you
2: know, I didn't have to be a priest to be me. Mm. I was able to I was able to separate me
1: from the priest for the for the very first time. They've been too they've been too interconnected until that point. Uh, I was able to, to kind of separate them. So that, yes, I am me, who happens to be a priest. I'm not priest
0: me. Interesting. If that, if that makes sense. It does. It does. And
1: I was asked to do a job that, that um, I didn't think I had any, any real qualifications to do. But by the end of the, of the fourth year... Um, uh, when they had the annual uh, dinner at the end of the year, and they had, people knew I, the university knew I was leaving, it's when they give out awards. Um, my job was being rector of a of a hall, and I forget how many halls there were, but I, I was given the award as rector of the year.
0: Wow! And,
2: wow! And it was it was the first time that a non Holy Cross priest or female religious had received. Uh,
1: well, female religious weren't Holy Cross uh, but all I was the only non-Holy Cross person in my position and I was the one who got the award uh, and normally would go to Holy Cross priest. So it was a sign to me the university did appreciate my work though again um, that was thanks to, I had an incredible staff of three other Adults, one a priest from New Zealand, and that's another whole part of my story that we will get into. But mm. um, uh, and I had twelve college students who were RAs, well, more than that over the course of four years, and it they were they were wonderful to work with. It, it was it was a great it was a great experience. It was it was uh, to feel the energy and the spirituality of. The, students was uh, very healing
0: and then after that you went on to what many people in our diocese consider your 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 signature work your your opus uh, which was Christ Our Light Parish in Loudonville where you were pastor for over 25 years 27
1: and you know I, I did not can I maybe I shouldn't say this um when the bishop asked me to come home, again, I didn't want to go back to Albany.
2: Mm. He he told me I could do this university job for a
1: year. And then when I came home at Christmas time, and uh, anyway, he said, All right, we don't, we, let's not play this game. Um, w- what are you thinking? And I said, Can I? Can I come and go with a class?
2: So four years. Ah. He saw, so he said, all right.
1: So when he called, I, I kind of thought he forgot about that. When he
2: called <laughs> at, at the fourth year to say, would you come home? I did not want to come home. How are you going to keep them
1: down on the farm after they've seen Perry? <laughs> and so to, to entice me to come home, uh, he did say, uh, I said, well, he did not want me to stay at the university, and I said, C- how about the, could I be a chaplain? I, someone, someone had asked me to consider, uh, I'd gotten friends with a general who had been chief of chaplains, and he'd asked me to consider becoming a chaplain. And so I went around to some Army bases, and I thought, I considered that very seriously. Um, uh, and then to um, kind of maybe entice me he offered me a parish that I was I was interested in and however I will say basically what happened I, I guess this is very important when when the three things were before me again I couldn't make a decision to stay to go into the army to come back home coming back home was the least I wanted to do but this parish kind of upped it a little bit. I went to a woman, again, who liked Father Kern. Uh, She said to me, you've done all the pros and cons. I can't tell you what to do. you got to dig deep and find out the Spirit knows where you're supposed to go. And when I spent a few days digging deep, I knew I had to go home.
0: Wow!
1: I I knew that was what I had to do. Not because the Bishop wanted me home. I knew this is where I was supposed to go. However, There was a little bait and switch because (laughs) after I turned in my letter to the um, university, my resignation letter, formally resigning, then I got a call saying that, you know, that parish we told you we're going to send you to, well, we've changed our mind. We're going to send you to St. Francis de Sales. Oh.
2: And (laughs) I, 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 I was not crazy about that
1: assignment. Wow. In fact, I tried to talk my way out of it. I offered to fill in for priests who were on sabbatical for a year or something like that. And um, finally, the bishop, Bishop Hubbard said, come in for lunch. Let's talk about it. And after he told me his reasons why he wanted me to go there, um, but he said to me, look, Dave, I'm not going to make you go there. Because if I make you go there, you'll be unhappy, they'll be unhappy, and there'll
0: be no winner. Mm, so wise like, man, pray about,
1: it, pray about it for a couple of days. And so when I thought about it pray prayed about it, I felt, um, again, it seemed to be the call.
0: Uh, and that was 27 years, yeah. Oh, and it was, was a... a- a place of of great um, openness great, and aliveness experimentation uh, yeah and and it's uh, I know that's where I came in that's that's the phase of your life where I got to know you and I know I've I've drawn so much inspiration from that chapter and and I know that there are people from that chapter that'll be listening to this recalling with great fondness uh, exactly what those years were like so Dave we're now talking for the man who was told, you are too uh, rebellious, for lack of a better word. Well, he, he was kind
1: of right in a way.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I i better than i conformist. I mean, and, but with the Vatican, too. Uh, if, if maybe if the church hadn't changed as it did, I, it would have been. Uh, he oh. could have been right on the money. Uh, but the um, Vatican II allowed me to be a lot freer than I might otherwise have been.
0: The Spirit called the right person at the right time. And actually, how interesting, we can't know what the reasons were that he left, but it might have been that the church that involved more uh, of a reclaiming of the pilgrim people version of, of church and the idea of the, the people being uh, at the center of, of God's work, That might have been where he was uncomfortable with the the lack of structure that he had known. And then Well
2: I will I will say
1: and I forgot about this and I should say this, several several years later he did return to the priesthood.
0: Oh. Fascinating. Uh, I I
1: I never heard the story. I have no idea.
0: I will um, actually I it's funny you say that. I'm planning to have his ex-wife on um on next week's <laughs> podcast. <laughs> 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 Just kidding everyone. Are, so right, right. Dave, are we talking are we talking now fifty-three years of priesthood?
1: Nineteen sixty-six to now, I guess somewhere around there, yeah.
0: Yeah. We've actually so we've crossed into we're going toward fifty-four years uh so 27 years in one parish the chance to be the pastor of your of your home uh parish all over again the chance to uh to be in Hudson Falls where you loved and the creative wonderful years of Notre Dame uh there are other stories in here too about uh news that we're not going to have time to cover now but New Zealand and and remarkable work that you've gotten to do abroad and I I,
1: and, and I, I I'll throw in very quickly that New Zealand was a hospital ministry
2: oh.
1: and that was the other thing that I said I never wanted to do and it turned out to be an incredible experience I started in London I, I, I had the summer in London as chaplain in hospital and it was wonderful and so when I had to stop doing New Zealand to be chaplain again uh, it was super
2: it and,
1: and, and it's a country that uh, I anyone who has not been to New Zealand has missed the most beautiful spot in the face of the earth.
0: No, yes. Thank you. I, you know, thank you for saying that I, one of my dearest childhood friends lives there with her husband and four children, uh, after being an exchange student there. And my plan is it's on my bucket list. And so that's an encouragement. I will, I will make sure to make my way there. Thank you for saying that. And, uh, yeah, for anybody okay. else listening, that sounds like a good bucket list location.
1: Can I can I end with this? Let me think if I can remember this now. Um, I, I filled out recently. I had hip surgery, so I filled out this thing called Five Wishes, which is your. It, it's here in North Carolina. It's put together by a fellow who worked with Mother Teresa, so it takes the place of your healthcare proxy. But it's mm. very, very complete. But one of the questions was, uh, "How do you want to be remembered? What do you want people to remember about you?" And I, what I said was, "I wanted people to remember me as
2: just an ordinary guy, mm. uh, who,
1: who, um, all his life was strengthened." By the witness of so many people I I ran into in ministry and outside of ministry who had the worst human situations possible,
2: and yet they got through them, mm. and they were and they were better people for having gotten through them.
1: Mm.
2: And and
1: I, I think little by little as I travel along the path, uh, I think it's these people and seeing what happened to them and seeing that they could get through I think, you know, they were a source of strength too. Uh, I, I will end I, I will, speaking of hospital ministries, uh, and I know we've gone probably over time but, you know,
2: North American College, Gregorian University did not prepare me to be a priest, pastorally speaking uh, I, I I never did a baptism,
1: I, I had no baptism class, I had no confession class, I had no marriage class I had mm. nothing And so the very first time I went to the hospital, we'll end with this story. The very first time I went to the hospital in Glen's Falls to anoint a lady was on a Saturday morning. And I pastor wasn't around, so I had to go. Uh, So I got into the room and I got the book. And she's not conscious. She's in her 80s. She's unconscious. And I'm anointing her. And I left the room. And I'm walking down the hall and I said, I don't think I did that right.
2: Mm. And I
1: went back and I anointed her a second time. Mm. Went through the whole ritual. And I walked out of the room. This is when I'm still a little uptight about rules, regulations. I walked down the hall and I said, no, no, I I, I don't think I did that right. I went back to do it a third time.
2: Mm. And by the time I got into the room, she had died. Oh. And and I, I, to this day, I'm convinced she thought I'd be doing this he'd be doing this to me the rest of the day if I don't die. <laughs> so I've got to die to get rid of him. Yeah. So anyway.
0: For, all right. So for our listeners, that's that's a great backstage example of macabre priest humor. We... <laughs> <laughs> poor
2: woman. Poor woman. All
0: right. But it's so true. Isn't that? I love that story. Dave, As you look back over your life, and this has been a delightful conversation to to sit here with you as as your friend, as your mentee, and also as somebody who's benefited from your ministry, may I ask you something I'm asking everybody that we're speaking with about this? Many people feel when they look back over their life that everything happens for a reason, and other people feel the opposite. What do you think?
1: shouldn't, and you're free to edit this out. Um, shit happens.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I've never. I I. Life happens,
2: mm. and
1: you you deal with it. You know you. It, it, I don't think it happens for. I think. I I, I take that back. Anyway, I, I guess I don't. I say that about bad things. I think. Bad things just happen. I think, like, for example, me being sent on Oxford me having an opportunity to work at Notre Dame, me having an opportunity to go to New Zealand. I I, I don't think those were accidents. Mm. You know, I, I think those were God's gifts to me. Uh, I think the other stuff, the tragedies, uh, the hard parts of life, um, um, I, I just, they, they come with life.
0: Yes. Yes. Next question, relatedly, because this stuff happens, because of this, because of what, what, what we may have to go through, What after counseling many people, after going through a lot of stuff yourself, what's the key to keeping one foot in front of the other and, and moving through the hardships of life? What's the, what's the key to never giving up?
1: Well, knowing that you've been through it before. Mm. Knowing that you've been through it before and and that you got through it before and that if you got through it before, you'll get through it again. And there will always, always, always be people that you can rely on who will be there for you,
2: the unexpected people. Mm. Um, they'll, you know, they'll see you through your situation.
1: Um mm. Um, like, uh, George Fleming, uh, the, the Stephen Sondheim hymn that he, saw
0: that he used, No, you're not alone. Yes.
1: And, and I, I have never been alone. Whatever I've been through, if I was alone, it was because I chose to be alone. Mm. And in, the, in those times, God was with me. I, I I will say during one of my hardest periods, when I was pretty much alone and not confiding in anyone, I, I had a loose-leaf notebook. And on one side, I would write, Dear God, and I would write everything I wanted to say to God. And on the other side, I said, Dear David, i read write everything God wanted to say to me. Oh. Now, I know a lot of that was, you know, self-talk. But I think in some of that, when when I finished that little exercise, when, when I did it, I, I, w- I would always feel a little more healed. I really did feel that God was speaking to me on that other side of the page. And so I, I wasn't alone. I didn't feel alone.
0: I am sure that someone listening needed to hear you say that. I'm sure of it. Because that's a very powerful practice. And I... I I I hear what you're saying that uh that you know it's hard to figure out where um your your self-consolation ends and God's voice begins but I think that's part of the mystery of how uh our life in God is so I am I am sure that someone listening here is saying maybe I should try that and I guess what I would say is if you are thinking that then you should because I I think that's a really you probably have not heard something like that before, and and if if that is something new that gives you hope that maybe you could have a different result, I think that's that's a powerful thought. I really do. Dave, final final question. Um, although we could, I could talk to you all night. Uh, final question is the reason this whole series began was because there are so many people unsure of how they're going to make their way through coronavirus. It just feels so challenging. It feels so difficult. It, it doesn't have an end date uh, yet. We have no idea how long this is gonna be. As you and I are speaking, the states are are opening up little bits, and uh, but the future is so unclear. Um, what are your best hopes for what our your life will be like, our life will be like as a people after coronavirus?
1: Well, let me quickly say, a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist from California, who I've known since he was twenty, twenty-one. He, he. We were talking about this the other day, getting through, getting through this, and he said three things every day. He said, "I, I find something to be grateful for uh, every day. I, I try to do something that's meaningful, mm. and three, I don't watch the news." Mm. You know I, I, or I only watch the news for information as little news as possible just to get to know what I need to know that that's been my practice
2: mm. uh, ever
1: since he told me that that's been my practice in terms of getting through it however the news I've chosen to watch is ABC News David Muir mm. uh, that's the only news I watch and of course I I, I see the stories of people who are in you know, I'm healthy and fine, and I I see the stories of what people are struggling with, and I, I my heart goes out to. Them. I feel guilty, like I like I, you know, like anyway. Um, but I but
2: I see good things coming out of this. Mm. I see good things coming out of this in education,
1: in in medicine with, with telehealth. Mm. Uh, I see it. I I, I just. Read an article in America Magazine about will will we be able to go back to church after we've had these virtual religious experiences? Um, will church will church be the same? I mean, mm. can I leave these virtual experiences? To go? I think I think we I I bonded more with people over the last three months than I have the last five years.
0: Wow! Yes. So
1: I see I see if. I see good things. It's like the space, like going into space, all the things that came out of going into space,
2: Mm. you know,
1: like uh, what was that orange juice that came out of? uh, Tang. uh, Yeah, Tang. (laughs) A lot of of good, a lot of products we buy now came out of space exploration. I I think there will be a lot of good things that will come out of this.
0: I love that. Uh, I love that. It uh, won't be Tang, but yeah. <laughs> it'll be. It'll be better. It'll be even better than Tang, which is hard to imagine. Well, <laughs> yeah, I would like to yeah. just say let's let's invite the viewers to just a second to synthesize all of this. Um, and I said the viewers. I don't. I don't know if they can see us. <laughs> They're listening. But uh, let's just take a moment and just savor something from this conversation that spoke to you. Was there uh, a moment of sharing that? you want to remember and hold on to. Was was something that Father Dave said something that you needed to hear because of what you're going through right now? What was it? And how did it speak, hopefully, to what you're dealing with? Was there a practice that he talked about? a, A method of going about things? The advice his psychologist friend gave him or the writing down in two columns or or the reflection about some of the things that some of those wise people said to him over the years. Is there anything that you want to take as food for, for your time in this adventure? Is there anything that you need for your journey going forward? Father David Noon, I can't tell you how grateful I am for the conversation. I've gained so much from it, and I've gained so much from being your friend and your mentee over these years. We've we discovered each other when I was a seminarian, so it is now probably about ten years ago, and uh, we we discovered that we had a real affinity for each other and started going to supper. And uh, you've you've really, I know that a lot of the work, th- even this podcast, the the thought of doing a podcast. Came about from from having a mentor like you who taught me to to think outside the boxes of what we normally do. So, I'm so grateful to you for all the ways you've affected me for the better, and uh, I'm so grateful that that our listeners got a chance to uh, to bask in some of that too. So, thank you for spending this time with us. You're welcome. My question is: We went well over
1: the suggested time. Is anyone awake? <laughs> just can't
0: imagine. They're going to wake up in next week's broadcast and wonder, who's this woman and why was she married to a priest in the first place? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Father David, thank you. Thank you, you, Scott. Thank Thank you, you, and thank you to all of our listeners. God bless you all.